everybody! Sorry if you thought this was sweet new content, but it kind of is if you didn't listen to the first version of this episode. So we originally recorded this episode during a lockdown. We don't know which one. And there were some audio issues on Hannah's end that made her sound pretty bad, and she usually sounds really, really good. So we've managed to reconvene in real life and have re-recorded this episode for your listening pleasure. So if you got through the original episode, there's like new discussions in here because it's a new recording session. And we forgot everything about this episode. Yeah. Um, but if you didn't get through the original episode, awesome, this is all new to you. Um, we'll be back with an all new season about some amazing women doing some wild stuff in historical and horrible wars. Women of War is written and recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. We pay our respect to their elders past and present and to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners. Sovereignty was never ceded. This episode contains references to vomiting, murder, piracy, and religious persecution. It also contains some rude language. It may not be suitable for all listeners. Oh, it says here it was the fourth lockdown. Oh, look at that. Yay! Oh, look, we made notes. We're clever. Yeah. Hi, I'm Nicola, and it is not the centenary <laughs> in a bit of the Battle of Messines. Um... We are fully going into this script blind. Yeah, yeah. We have yeah, yeah. not looked at it in months. I'm Nicola and I am a historian teacher of crime and masculinity and I also love Doctor Who but not what's happening with it right now. Jodie Whittaker's great but everything else is just trash. Hannah? I'm Hannah. I do love Jodie Whittaker. I haven't been up to date with Doctor it's Who. It's trash. It's trash. It's just so convoluted. I'm a PhD die. student. Uh, I am a historian. An historian, uh, I'm are you? Historian. She's an historian, governor. I study women's anti-nuclear activism in the 1950s and 1960s in Australia. Because it sounds really cool. Awesome. And welcome to Women of War, a podcast where we remember that 50%-ish of the population also had stuff to do during wars and battles and times of conflict throughout history, and often it wasn't nursing, even though today's nurses deserve a million-dollar pay raise. They All really of them. do. Today, we're going to sail through the seven seas with Irish pirate queen Gronya O'Malley, or Grace O'Malley. Is this the first time we've done a pirate? Well, this is actually the second time we've done the first time of doing a pirate. Yeah. So, two apologies in advance to our Irish listeners. Uh, first, we have done our best to get the pronunciations right, uh, but the Irish blood in my veins is now but a tiny drop in the sea of Britishness. And two, Nicola will attempt Irish accents. I cannot guarantee how successful they will be, so please give her the time to support the enthusiasm you would for a puppy who's learning a new trick. Be my mama. I will pat her on the head occasionally. Now, before we get to Grania herself, let's have a quick carriage ride past early Irish history. It's pretty straightforward. Nothing too confusing happens, particularly not in the 16th century where we're headed today. You've completely lost Ireland already. I know. We could go back to the beginning of Irish history, but Hannah decided she had to sleep at some point rather than plotting out the entirety of Irish history from when humans first arrived on the island of Ireland around 10,500 BC. That is so long ago. Humans Holy are old, man. Crap. Until 2020, when a northern Irish woman became the first person in the world to be given... The COVID jab, which one? We don't know. Don't Outside know. clinical trials. Well, I feel like we've gone back in time reading this script. I know. Like, remember when we didn't have enough vaccines because the Prime Minister hadn't ordered them? Remember when all we wanted in life was a vaccine? Oh. <laughs> and then people refused to get the vaccine. Oh. Oh. Okay, so let's start instead in the 12th century. So at this point, Ireland had spent a bit of time being Christian, a bit of time dealing with snakes and a hungry snake whisperer named St. Patrick, and a bit of time dealing with rampaging Vikings with really nice hair. 
At the beginning of the 1100s, the Christians were firmly planted, and some of the Vikings had thrown down some roots as well, and everyone was split happily into small kingdoms united under a high king, which is very Lord of the Rings. So in 1169 CE, in this idyllic paradise... There were still wars between different kingdoms. This idyllic paradise, the Normans arrived. Actually, no, you're right. Those wars were actually important because it was an exiled Irish king, Dermot McMurrah, who invited the Normans in so he could regain his kingdom, which was a dumb move, Dermot. The Normans had already invaded Britain and decided it would be quite nice to have a bit of Ireland too. Thank you very much. As with most of history, once the rulers of Britain show up anywhere that wasn't Britain, it's not great for the people already living there. So the King of England at the time, Henry II, was a bit wary of the Norman forces supporting Dermot in case they decided to set up shop as their own rival Norman state, a jump, skip and a throw away from jolly old England. Pope Alexander III, the only English Pope in history, issued a papal bull in 1155, giving Henry permission to invade Ireland if he thought there was corruption within the church. Henry finally followed through with this in 1171 when he took a fleet to Ireland. We don't know why he didn't just get the ferry. (laughs) Uh, He named his son John the Lord of Ireland and signed the Treaty of Windsor in 1175 with the Irish king, Roderick O'Connor. So Dermot's dead, by the way. Rip rip Dermot. I knew you not. Yes, poor Dermot. The treaty did fall and soon every Norman with an inferiority complex was invading to grab a lovely little second home for themselves. It's very escape to the country. I fucking hate that show. I've had too many coffees today. I'm it's legit. It legitimately like upsets me when people are like, "Oh, we just want a little second home," and they spend like two million pounds, and I'm like, <laughs> "Look, gentrification has a long history." Well, it's like the area I grew up in is like becoming gentrified, so it's mm-hmm. like, "What are you doing there? There are no streetlights. <laughs> Get out!" So, this is really the beginning of colonizing Ireland with the Normans making permanent changes, like bringing in their own tenants and introducing feudalism and proto-capitalism rather than the existing barter system. See, look, I told you it was an idyllic paradise. I would love a barter system. Between the late 1100s and the early 1300s, Ireland was under varying levels of rule from the Normans. King John, Henry II's son, was still the Lord of Ireland and managed to convince many Irish kings to support him. So, side note here, based on my possibly incorrect understanding of the differences between the Normans and the English. The, st- the Normans are stormmen and the English are awful. Yes. According to... Thank you, Terry Terry. Terry. Yeah. <laughs> Terry Terry. <laughs> What's his name? Terry Deary. Terry Deary. Look, Terry, Terry Deary's Deary. better at rhymes. <laughs> so, in this episode, we discussed the Normans who came to Ireland from England, plus the English. So, it would make sense that these were one and the same, but they're not. This gets very complicated and includes many family trees. But if I've read the BBC website correctly, the Normans are the Normans and the English are the Anglo-Saxons. Sometimes Smashing Saxons! Sometimes the Normans and the English are the same thing when a Norman king is on the throne. Sometimes they're different. When they're being very Norman, we're going to call them Normans. When they're being very English, we're going to call them English. I hope you've got it because I don't. So the Normans also established slash imposed the Parliament of Ireland in 1297. In 1315, Edward Bruce of Scotland invaded and rallied Irish lords against the English presence. And though they were eventually defeated, local Irish did manage to take back some of their lands that had been taken in previous conquests by the Normans and the English. The current King of England, Edward I, was more concerned with what was happening in other parts of his kingdom and so didn't give the Norman lords the support they needed to hold the land. English and slash or Norman control of Ireland continued to wane over the 14th century. 
Many Normans who had moved to Ireland began to adopt Irish customs and names and renounce their allegiances to the English crown. Peter Fitzsimons just nodding in the background there. (laughs) The Hundred Years' War was kicking off around now, plus the plague was doing its thing, and the European famine gave the Irish a taste of what would happen with their potatoes in the future. So there was just a lot going on, and you can't blame Eddie for, like, not quite realising. Fair. Fair. So I'm just stuck on plague and then running out of food. Plague. <laughs> oh, God. Well, we have enough food. It's we do have enough food. But people are dumb. But anyway. Oh, also the day we're recording this is the day Scott Morrison's like, let's let kids drive forklifts. So it's Ooh. just been a, it's just been a great day, a day on Twitter. It's a day. So now we get to the 1530s when Grania was born. This was a period in which English control of Ireland was weak and everyday Irish people were largely unaffected by English politics. There are around 60 countries ruled by chieftains who held no allegiance to the English. In England itself, Henry VIII is running around marrying and beheading women left, right and centre, divorcing the Pope and creating his own religion. So this is the world that Grania was born into. So archives are, if you haven't twigged by now, incredibly biased towards one type of history. The rich and powerful, and in the vast majority of cases, rich and powerful white men. Well, that's a good sentence that I wrote. I like that. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. The further back in time you go, the harder it is to find the words of women. And in, other minorities. And other minorities, And other yes. minorities, yeah. Women for the point of this podcast. So in some cases, women weren't literate and so could not write down their stories. Uh, the history profession is slowly learning how to incorporate oral traditions as historical sources, but this is still far from the mainstream. In other cases, their stories were not preserved because their writings were deemed less important. On top of this, the histories that get told and preserved are at the whim of political tides. So this is particularly evident in the history of Grania O'Malley. So, for generations, Irish historians neglected to give much time to Grania. Irish historical tradition had, until the late 20th century, been focused on particular stories of national heroes, and Grania did not fit that mould. She was a woman, which to them wasn't very useful, um, and she was, in the words of a contemporary, a woman who overstepped the part of womanhood, i.e. she became a chieftain less concerned with tending the home fires and more concerned with sailing the seven seas. That is also a good sentence. Well done. Seafaring also put her in close contact with the rough men who often worked on ships. So early Irish histories often left Grania out. The Annals of the Four Masters, an influential Irish history written just after Grania died, did not mention her name, even though the compilers of that history had access to people who would have remembered and even known her. So as a result of this, much of the information we have on Grania comes from English sources, which particularly in this age of tension between England and Ireland would have had their own biases when discussing Irish figures. Luckily, we do also have her words, preserved in letters she wrote in later life. But these two were written for a particular purpose, as you'll see later on. The source has bias, you'll see. The source has the bias. The source has bias. A shock to many first-year history students. <laughs> Grania O'Malley, or Grania Niwalia, was born around 1530 CE in West Ireland, around County Mayo today, which is right next to County Potato Salad. <laughs> she was born into Niwalia clan, the only daughter of Margaret Owen Dabdara O'Malley, who could trace her lineage back to Brian Orbson, the High King of Ireland, until his death in 388 CE. Her father had inherited the role of chiefman of the Kingdom of Umhal on the West Coast. By the time of Grania's birth, the O'Malleys were the only Gaelic chieftains in Mayo who were able to retain their independence and rank. Ireland was run largely under Brehon law at this point, a distinctly Gaelic legal system. Society was made up of clans, which were extended family groupings under a chieftain. The chieftain was an elected position, chosen by members of the ruling family. The position was, however, always passed to a male relative. Unsurprisingly. 
A chieftain gained their power through a system of clientship, i.e. he had sublords under him who paid tribute annually and committed men to assist the chieftain in times of war. Being so close to the coast, the O'Malley's were a seafaring family, which, considering Ireland is an island, is actually rarer than you'd think. And now both Ireland's are islands. Their clan motto is Terra Marig Potens, or power Powerful by Land and Sea. Powerful by Land and Sea. <laughs> Sorry, I just really... It hit me this time. <laughs> Powerful by Land and Sea. Unlike most Irish clans who made their living primarily on land, the O'Malley's made their living primarily on the sea. That's why they were so powerful by land and sea. Yes, yeah. yes. Uh, through fishing and trade, and, you know, sometimes piracy to supplement their legal income. They controlled castles up and down the coast, as well as Clue Bay. So Clue Bay was a particularly effective stronghold for the O'Malley's, being inaccessible to anyone without a local knowledge of the area. Dabdara was in charge of the largest fleet in Ireland, and their services were often in demand by local chieftains, wanting an advantage in a war with another clan. The references to the O'Malley's in historical sources shows their reputation as powerful seafarers. Powerful. They even traded, or plundered, as far as Scotland and Spain, an idea which comes from a poem from the 15th century which, while it does not rhyme in English, paints a vivid picture of the family. Quote, they are the lions of the green sea, men acquainted with the land of Spain. When seizing cattle from Cantire, a mile by sea is a short distance to the O'Malley's. I uh, just try and make it rhyme. I was just saying, like, sounds like a VFD poem. <laughs> <laughs> Seafaring was a hard life. This was not a balmy tropical paradise with gentle waves and snorkeling tourists. The western coast of Ireland faces the North Atlantic Ocean. The land is rough and rugged, with massive cliffs and inhospitable harbours. The weather is often dramatic, which is great if you're curled up in a nice warm room watching through strong windows, but not so great if you're on a ship at the whim of the winds and tides. The whim of the winds and tides. Added to the natural difficulties, this is the 1500s, when there are no radars or other helpful technology. Maps were somewhat limited. Ireland wasn't really properly mapped until the end of the 16th century. Also, ships were made of wood, and there are pirates. Ahoy. But on the flip side for the O'Malley's, being experienced navigators of such difficulties gave them an advantage, making them able to escape attacks on land by sea, as well as giving them access to trade in far-off places that were inaccessible to their land-bound neighbours. This was particularly important considering that trade in Western Ireland was centred around Galway, which was subject to laws which prohibited clans outside the city walls trading in the city. Therefore, the O'Malley's ability to trade via alternative sea routes was vital. It gave them access to a greater variety of markets, which meant more people to sell to, and also more people to buy exotic products from. It also meant exposure to different ways of life. By the time Grania was born, the O'Malley's had a reputation as formidable pirates who were, quote, much feared everywhere by sea. Wow, they sound so powerful. Powerful. Oh no, I regret everything. <laughs> Grania grew up at Belclare Castle, a stone fortress that was the seat of the O'Malley chieftain. It would not have been a comfortable place to live, as it was built for defence rather than luxury. For sons of the chieftain, childhood was a series of lessons in weapons, horse riding and raiding, to prove they were strong leaders who should be elected as the next chieftain. We don't really have any information on Grania's childhood or education. She appears to have received some degree of formal education, possibly from the friars who lived on O'Malley land. We do know, based on her later life, that she must have spent time learning the skills of seafaring. Grania probably accompanied her father on voyages and learned her trade from him. One anecdote recounts that when Grania asked to join her father on a seafaring expedition and was rejected on the grounds that her long hair would get caught in the ship's ropes, she cut off her hair and forced her father to take her with him. 
While Grainne was growing up, Henry VIII began to turn his attention to Ireland. In 1534, the 10th Earl of Kildare, Thomas Fitzgerald, revolted against Henry because Henry had executed Fitzgerald's dad and planned to come after Thomas himself. His revolt became the Kildare Rebellion, which failed and is not particularly relevant here. The relevant bit is that Thomas's revolt brought Ireland's running to the attention of Henry, who decided it needed a bit of a shake-up, or rather a shake-down. <laughs> he redesignated Ireland as the Kingdom of Ireland in 1541, named himself the King of Ireland rather than the Lord of Ireland, as English kings have been doing, and he introduced the policy of surrender and re-grant. This policy aimed to remove kinship and clan ties from the Irish ruling system, and instead introduced a feudal system based on English law. Irish chieftains were encouraged to surrender their lands to the king, who would then re-grant the lands back to the chieftains to charge rent off their tenants in return for swearing loyalty to Henry. The chieftains who did so had to follow English law but would receive a title. Many took him up on his, air quotes, offer, either because they felt they had no choice or because they wanted more money or because they had become disillusioned with the prevailing ruling system. By the time Henry died in 1547, much of Ireland had come under direct English control. This had not made its way to the O'Malley lands, however, by the time Grainne was around 16, which was around 1546. The O'Malley's were able to trade further afield and were therefore less reliant on local markets and could afford to take a step back from such political manoeuvrings. There was, however, one political manoeuvring that Dabdara was inclined to participate in, marrying his daughter off for political rewards. When Grania was 16, she was married to Donald O'Flaherty, the son of the chieftain of the Ballinahint clan, neighbours to the O'Malley's. Donald had been chosen as the eventual successor to his father, and so this marriage would link the O'Malley's to the rule of the O'Flaherty lands that comprise most of modern-day Connemara. So I did try and find out how large that is, but the Connemara is also a breed of horse, so the answer I got to quote how big is a Connemara was 50 to 58 inches, which seems quite a small, you know, piece of land worth bargaining. Why, you know, are you me- why are you measuring horses in inches, not hands? I don't know. Ah. Google. Upon her marriage, Grania moved to Benowen Castle, an hour and 22 minute drive from her previous home at Belclair. Being the 1500s, however, this trip would have taken a bit longer, and so teenage Grania was very isolated from her family. No longer having adventures on the sea, Grania would have been expected to manage household affairs and birth heirs for Donald. The O'Flaherty clan had a bit of a reputation as warmongers, and folklore suggests that the walls of Galway town were inscribed with From the fierce, ferocious O'Flaherty's, O Lord, deliver us! Which may or not be true, but certainly gives a sense of how the clan is remembered, or if they wrote that themselves, how they wanted to be perceived. Look, that's a power move. Yeah. Donald, Grania's new husband, went by the nickname of Donald of the Battles, suggesting he was very much in favour of his clan's reputation, and someone unlikely to welcome any partner who would want to share power. Grania did what was expected and gave birth to two sons and a daughter, Owen, Mara and Margaret. While Grania was busy getting down to business, Donald got involved in murder. <laughs> in 1549, Walter Fader Burke was murdered at the Oflati Castle of in- Invernan. Burke was the son of a local lord and it was allegedly Donald's sister Finola who urged her brother to kill Burke so that her son would replace Burke as the heir to the lordship. Okay, so pause on the murder for a hot sec. While Donald was running around trying to prove he was the manliest man to ever man, getting into murder plots and feuds with his neighbours, Grania was unable to sit by and let the O'Flaherty clan be run by a twat. Oral tradition records that Grania essentially took over the managing of the clan, despite Gaelic law forbidding women from holding such positions. So despite this law, 
Rhaenyra was evidently not only accepted as the clan leader, but so well respected that many of Donal's clansmen would later follow Grania when she left Bunowen. But before she left, Bunowen was the perfect place to take up seafaring again, and a report suggests that it was while living here that Grania really began life as commander of ships and perhaps even pirating. Benoan Bay, the site of the castle, sits on an inlet which is sheltered by a small bit of land from the wilds of the North Atlantic. Though still a dangerous passage through shoals and rocks, the bay is largely protected from winds to the north, east and west, and the passage to the beach itself is apparently really straightforward once you know the right route. So it's a really good place then to tip your toes back into the water. As we said earlier, Galway was not the greatest fans of the O'Flatities, making trade in the city difficult due particularly to taxes imposed on the clans like the O'Flatities. So Gram- Grania began using her ships to charge taxes of her own. <laughs> Avast, ye mateys, it's the Australian Taxation Office. <laughs> we do not take gift cards. Oh, God. <laughs> Grania and the ships under her command would cost merchant ships heading to Galway and would only provide safe passage into the city if the merchants paid a toll or surrendered some of their cargo. And, like, probably the reason no one really showed up in Ireland in between Henry VIII dying and Elizabeth I showing up is because they'd been through, like, three monarchs in, like, how long was it? Five years? Wasn't that long at all. It was Jane, Edward, and Mary only ruled for, like, three or four years? Do you want to sing the song? No. No, William, William, Henry, Henry, Henry. Sorry, things, but Queen Elizabeth I came to power in England and she turned her eyes towards Ireland as her father had done. So initially, Lizzie followed her dad's policy of surrender and regrant, continuing to try and entice nobles in Ireland to support her. There was some pushback against this, and sometimes Elizabeth had to resort to military methods. In 1564, Murrow of the Battle Axes, a minor chieftain in the O'Flaherty clan, got too big for his boots. Do Irish people wear boots? Yeah, probably. probably. He decided to launch a campaign to get more power and began by attacking an English lord, the Earl of Clanricard. You'd think this would be a terrible move, as the English could not ignore such a blatant affront against the English peerage. You'd be wrong. Elizabeth, who was a very good ruler, calculated that it would be too costly to take on Murrow in open warfare, as he had a strong force and had the home court advantage. But if Elizabeth could convince Murrow to support her in the English monarchy, then that might actually help her cause in Ireland and convince more Irish chieftains to pledge loyalty to her. So Elizabeth pardoned Morrow for his attack on the Earl and actually awarded him by declaring he was the Lord of all Lachonat. Lachonat or Iachonat? Iach. It's an, it's an oh, I. Sorry. Iachonat, the area which roughly comprises modern-day Connemara, i.e. which is the land of the Euphrates. And is 50 to 58 centimetres high. Yeah. No, inches. <laughs> a clan that is that Morrow was only a bit player in. The clan that Grania's husband, Donal, was the heir to. That clan. Their land. So basically, Queen Elizabeth took Brehon Law and threw it in the bin. She overthrew an elected official for her own gains, which is really on brand for the English. This was a policy she would use again while trying to get Ireland back under English control. It undermined Gaelic laws and traditions in favour of English law and set previously allied clans against each other in an all-out war for more power and influence. This obviously impacted the legally elected heir T.R. Connacht, Mr. Grania O'Malley, and Grania watched the situation unfold, knowing that only a strong leader would be able to counteract the influence of the English. So as you might have picked up on, that strong leader was not Donal. 
So, not to victim blame, but Donald actually went and got himself murdered because Karma realised he was a kind of useless lump. So he was killed in 1565 by a neighbouring clan, the Joyces, no relation to Barnaby, in an act of revenge... <laughs> oh, maybe it is. No. Um, in an act of revenge for the time he took their island fortress from them. Okay, so do you want a fun fact about this story? Yes, and I've forgotten all of this bits. This I've also forgotten this fact. Woo! This is going to be fun. All right. So... When Donald took the castle from the Joyces, he was unsurprisingly, from the little I know about him, a bit of a dick. He rubbed it in their faces and went around all puffed up like a rooster. So the Joyces nicknamed him Donald the Cock. When they killed him, they renamed the castle Cock's Castle in celebration of his defeat. But they forgot about Grunya, who defended the castle with Donald's men so skillfully that it was named Hen's Castle in her honour. And that's the name it carries today. And that's that castle's other name... Albert Einstein. <laughs> that was a fun fact. That's cute. I, I like enjoyed that, that story. Yeah. I'd forgotten it. So even though Grania successfully defended the castle, the English also came for it. And soon Grania and her followers were under siege. So as we've mentioned before, sieges are generally shit. It's no fun being stuck inside your house for long periods. <laughs> <laughs> and it's even less fun when you run out of food and they're being bombed all the time. Well, cannoned. Bombarded. Bombarded. As we all know, however, Grania was not one to give up lightly, and so she casually ordered her troops to take off the castle's lead roof, melt it down, and pour it onto the English banging on the front door. Which is really dangerous, because you could get lead poisoning from that. Look, you could get lead poisoning from pretty much everything. Yeah, that's true. So, I feel like it's not adding to your risk of lead poisoning. Yeah, the main threat to having boiling lead poured on your head is um, lead poisoning. Really? Yes. It's very dangerous because it can enter via any orifice on the head. I feel like the boiling part of it is no, also no, dangerous. No, it's fun. It has Should a very low boiling point. 12 degrees. Do you know? this? No. Okay. Where are you going to get the lead from? I've got a lot of pencils. That's got graphite in it. It's not yeah. lead. No, that's true. Well, we get the flashing from Bunnings. Anyway. <laughs> so, the English retreated to a less boiling metal on my head distance, or less lead poisoning distance, apparently. <laughs> Grania sent a man to light a beacon for aid. The beacons of Minas Tirith were lit. Gondor called for aid. Aragorn pushed open the double doors very sexily. Reinforcements arrived to send the English packing. The siege was lifted. Lockdown was over! <laughs> but although Grania had just thoroughly proven she could handle anything thrown at her and successfully lead her people, Brayon Law still prohibited women from being recognised as chieftains. So even though she'd been acting as unofficial chieftain even before Donald got himself murdered, Donald's cousin was elected as the new chieftain of the Oflachty clans. So Grania went F this shit and went back to the O'Malley Castle at Clare Island. Proving that those who had elected Donald's Donald's cousin were dumb, Grania also took a whole bunch of loyal Oflachty men with her, men who'd served under her in the siege and knew what a good leader was when they saw one, regardless of what she had on under her skirt. It was from her base on Clare Island, supported by these men and ships from her father, that Grania truly began her life as a pirate. Grania later described her piracy as, quote, maintenance by land and sea, which is a very polite and euphemistic way of saying, as a woman in 16th century Ireland, I have very little power or ways to make an honest living, but I'm really great at sailing, so I'm going to be a pirate. As a widow, she had very few rights, and she didn't have any way to make money, except for maybe the world's oldest profession, which she probably didn't want to do. So she returned to her father's land sometime in the 1560s. It's cold in Ireland to take your clothes off, honestly. I'm sure they did it inside. Yeah. Zabdara yeah. was still chieftain of the O'Malley's, and so Grania had some measure of security there. Grania was also the only heir to her mother's land, so again, it made sense to live near her family. As we mentioned earlier, the O'Malley lands were also prime pirate real estate. 
Clare Island sits at the mouth of Clue Bay, a harsh and inaccessible bay, unless you have local knowledge of the area. On Clare Island, Grania lived in a tower castle, which gave her 360-degree views around the bay, making it nearly impossible to sneak into Clue without someone in the tower sounding the alarm. We don't know exactly what Grania did when she first resettled at Clare, though it seems she got straight into piracy to take care of herself and her people. She began to build up a reputation as both a leader and a supporter of rebellion against the English. Based on sources written in the 1590s, it's also possible Grania was acting as an independent chieftain as early as the 1550s, and possibly achieved this status through open warfare with other clans. During the 1560s and 1570s, Grania also consolidated her status as a pirate by accosting ships off the western coast of Ireland. So she didn't do it alone. Behind every strong woman, there are 200 strong men making up her army. <laughs> Alongside the I Afla- want that on a t-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Alongside the Aflaxi men that had followed her to Clare Island and O'Malley men, Grania also had men from the Burke, McCormack, McNally, Mac- McConroy and Clan Donald clans. Now, 200 men doesn't sound that impressive or that much, but remember, these men came from clans that historically were constantly at war with each other. Donald had supposedly murdered a Burke, so it's impressive these disparate men united under Grania. More impressive, these men abandoned their own clans to join her. Most impressive, these men accepted Grania, a woman, as a leader, despite social and cultural customs teaching them that women could not be chieftains or wield any similar power to men. Earning the loyalty of her army was no easy feat, but Grania's active leadership style would have gone a long way there. She didn't just order her men about from her secure castle. Grania was always right in there among the action, both on the ships and on land. Her men trusted her to lead them into any situation and get them out again safely, and so would follow wherever Grania ordered. And the respect they gave her went both ways, and Grania is purported to have said that she would prefer a ship of her men to a ship full of gold. Gold can't sail a ship after all. But gold is pretty good. It is pretty good. You can exchange it for goods and services. Yeah. (laughs) Many more peanuts. <laughs> there is an element of not like other girls <laughs> to this part of Grania's story. That was not like other girls, by the way. <laughs> Biographies of Grania suggest that part of her ability to earn the trust of her men that she was free from the modesty and female insecurities of other women of her time and so could fit in with the men more easily. Grania had at least one traditionally masculine hobby, gambling, and sources suggest that she swore appropriately like a sailor. She was also sexually liberated and took as many lovers to her bed as any male captain would, which could be zero and it could be 40. I'm not here to shame anybody. Yeah. Like, she, some male captains might not have been interested. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure there were gay pirates. Oh, I'm not sure there was gay pirates. Like, I'm very tired from sailing this I have boat. seasickness. I have they haven't invented quells yet, which set, which send me to sleep. It I turns can't out. get Trevor Calm at the chemist. Yeah. <laughs> they haven't invented telehealth. <laughs> so whatever the situation, there's no doubt that she did inspire men to follow her. When her father died, Grenier took command of most of his fleet and even acted, at least for a period, as the official chieftain of the O'Malley's. Grania already controlled Clue Bay, and with other O'Malley strongholds along the coast under her command, she essentially controlled a significant portion of the Irish west coast. No ships attempting to sail the coast were safe from Grania's fleet. You weren't safe on land, either. There are numerous accounts of Grania attacking and seizing castles along the coast, so her wealth and her fame grew. One particular legend stands out in the historical record showing exactly what kind of woman Grania was. One day, a ship washed up near Achill Head on the neighbouring island. Grania took her men through a gale to the ship to see if there was anything worth salvaging, and there was a hottie. 
Granny found <laughs> Hugh de Lacey in the wreckage of the ship. So Hugh was the son of a wealthy merchant from England, and we're going to assume he looked like Hugh Dancy. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Hugh DeLacy, Hugh, Hugh DeLacy. Delac- yeah. It could be the same person. It could be a vampire like Keanu Reeves. Yep. Uh, and he and Granya fell in love, or lust. Um, but mythical legends tend to call it love. Their lusty love, however, didn't get a chance to see it could last. One day, Hugh was deer hunting on Achill Island when he was killed by the McMahons. And why was that, Hannah? Uh, we don't know. Okay. Because Achill Island was a mellow territory, so it's not like they were mm. like, get off our land. Uh, I don't know. Maybe it's an accident. Maybe they're like, that guy looks like Hugh DeLancey. Dancy? Hugh Hugh de- Dancy. Who de- Dancy? Hugh de- DeLancey. Hugh DeLancey. That guy looks like a deer. Hugh DeLancey. That guy looks like a deer. Let's kill him. I don't know. Huh. Okay, well, Hugh's dead at the hands of the yeah. McMahons. Bye, Hugh. Bye, Hugh. Goodbye, Hugh. And um, Grania was apparently devastated, and she decided to avenge her love. Not long after the McMahons... And then Nick Fury turned up. Wait, are the McMahons related to, like, Danny Minogue's father-in-law? No, I I don't think so. Okay. Um, So, not long afterwards, um, the McMahons sailed past Clare Island on their way to Clare Island for pilgrimage. Now, Clare Island is only about 9k south of Clare. Grania in the High Tower Castle on Clare could easily see what was going on and could see where the McMahons landed on car. Care. Car. Sorry, Irish people. <laughs> While the McMahons were paying homage to St. Patrick, Grania and her fleet sailed down and captured the McMahons' vessels, leaving them stranded on the island and unable to escape her wrath. She killed those she thought were responsible for Hugh's death and then decided for good measure to sail to the McMahons' castle where Grania and her men overpowered all the remaining McMahons and claimed the castle for Grania, which is perhaps a bit of overkill for the death of a guy you didn't know that long. Points to love, though. Points to love. Or super lust. So I'm not going to say anything else's mom's like, Nicholas, stop swearing on your podcast. <laughs> so just really good, hard love yeah. in that relationship. Yeah. 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 Love that goes all through the night. Oh, my God. Anyway, <laughs> anyway I, I do kind of also wonder if it's a pretext, either from Grania herself or maybe, like, later historians um, talk, like, maybe she wanted the castle and needed a reason to sort of justify it. Mm. Um, or maybe later writers were like, mm, that's not very womanly. Um, and they wanted to give her like a noble reason for her bye to have bye taken boys, the castle. Bye bye boys, have fun storming the castle. <laughs> so, you know, like Irish history is very full of like these kind of heroic mm. figures. Um, so perhaps taking the castle for love fit in with that image. Better than like men taking castles for yeah. plunder. Oh, she just wanted money. Oh, that's a bit nasty. Yes. Um, so another legend of her during this time is similarly intriguing about her actual motivations. So the story goes that one day Granny was sailing home from her voyage when she stopped at Howth Castle for provisions for the last leg of her journey. Granny expected hospitality and a warm welcome from St. Lawrence, who was the lord of the castle. As a chieftain, she was entitled to this under Gaelic custom. But Lawrence was English, and so he didn't really follow Gaelic traditions. Uh, he had the gates locked, and he had a servant inform Grania that Master was dining and was not at home to visitors. Grania was offended at this rudeness <laughs> and stormed back to her ship. Conveniently, on the way, she ran into St. Lawrence's grandson on the beach. So she abducted him and took the grandson back to Clare Island. St. Lawrence followed, wanting his grandson. Fair enough. Um, and the grandson was also the heir, so also, fair enough, back. He expected that Grania would demand golden riches, but instead she demanded that he pinky promise to follow Gaelic hospitality <laughs> customs in future and never ever turn away anyone seeking help. Because they might be a fairy in disguise. Mm. So basically this is the origin story for Beauty and the Beast. 
Um, but <laughs> St. Lawrence obviously agreed and was able to take his grandson home to Half. Now, again, this could be the case. Maybe Grenier was really super obsessed with customs. Like, that's fair. Um, but also, maybe it's sort of like a rehabilitation of her image. Like, mm. she didn't steal that child for bad reasons. She stole it for good she reasons. She stole the child for good reasons. I feel like Australian white people shouldn't say anything to do with stealing a child for good reasons. Yeah. So, I think about it. so in 1566, apparently over the loss of Hugh Dancy, Grania, now in her mid-30s, married Richard Burke, a chief of the Ulic of Borisul and Karasept, or family. And obviously, if you're picturing the guy from Friends, valid. Historians believe... I wasn't, but I am now. Yeah, Dr. Richard Burke. Yeah. Historians believe that this marriage was a calculated move on Grania's part, as Richard not only had a very strategically positioned castle, so that's what they call it these days, but also some helpful sheltered harbours for her fleet. So that's what they call it these days. <laughs> See, Mum, I don't have to swear to have fun. Burke was elected as heir to the chieftain, the McWilliam, and was a skilled fighter and strategist in his own right. Strategist? Strategist. In a very daytime television twist, Richard was the stepbrother of Walter Burke, the guy that Grania's first husband, Donald, had murdered. <gasps> Lo siento. <gasps> Bruno's telenovela is getting so exciting <laughs> in the walls. <laughs> Richard and Grania married on a trial basis, which is very sensible and was very common again amongst Gaelic nobility in this period. Both parties agree to be married for a year, and either can withdraw after that time. No hard feelings or prenup needed. I guess it's kind of like an annulment. Yeah. Like the action of an annulment, but easier. It makes yeah. sense. Yeah. You just it's, might not like it. Yeah. I feel like it's like, live together before you get married. And if the alliance doesn't work out, like yeah. it doesn't... Mm. Mm. Uh, in very typical Grania fashion, she agreed to the trial marriage, moved into Richard's castle with her men, then when the year is up, locked Richard out and called down for the battlements of his own castle, Richard Burke, I dismiss him. Dolores is listening and she's like, ah! <laughs> She dismissed him? <laughs> It's just so Grania. I love it. Yeah. Just like, yep, this castle's mine now. Bye. Grania, the telenovela. But it's okay because in more daytime television, <gasps> they were on again, off <gasps> again, until Burke died 20 years later. Burke has died and he was replaced by his evil twin. <laughs> <laughs> in 1567, they had a son, Tibetne Long, who folklore tells was born while Grania was on her ship. Grania gave birth and was only a day into post-birth recovery when her ship was attacked by Barbary pirates, so she went above deck to lead her men. And they were like, ah! And Placenta they were... just, like, trailing. Oh, God, no! <laughs> There's enough blood when no! you're being attacked by other pirates. Stop you're not going to talking notice. forever. <laughs> Around the time of Tim and A. Long's birth is about when the English really stepped in to micromanage the land. And by micromanage, we, of course, mean colonise. Ireland holds the unwanted distinction of being England's first colony. Much the same way that things that happened with her dad, Elizabeth, the Queen, had the first one, had mostly <laughs> left Ireland to care for itself until the situation was brought to the front of her mind with some casual warfare. In 1565, the Earl of Desmond and the Earl of Ormond followed in their family's tradition of fighting and waged battle over a piece of land. This would be the Battle of the Fane. Again, the intricacies of it are kind of unimportant, but what is important is that this private battle enraged Elizabeth because it undermined her claim to be the ultimate ruler of Ireland. This was, in fact, the last private battle in England or Ireland. Imagining, like, ultimate fighter, but Queen Elizabeth I. <laughs> Rock'em Sock'em Royals. <laughs> so Lizzie decided it was time to really bring Ireland to heel. 
And so England decided the easiest and cheapest way to do this was to colonise their neighbours. Oh, this is quite easy. We should try this with everybody else. (laughs) And so English governors were sent in to manage Irish provinces. The first was Sir Edward Fitton, who was sent to Connaught, and Sir John Perrault, who was sent to Munster. I am Sir John Perrault. (laughs) (laughs) I am a colonizer. (laughs) Haven't seen the movie. No, it's going to be terrible. Both set up as ruling authorities who worked to undermine the authority of Gaelic or Breton law. The Irish didn't just take this sitting down, however, and many rebelled over the course of several years. In 1574, the English decided to divide County Mayo up into ten baronies. In 1575, Sir Henry Sidney, not the guy we named Sidney after. Different Sidney. Different Sidney with an I. Sidney with an I. Sidney with an I, not a Y, but it has a Y. <laughs> the English Lord Deputy visited Connaught to try to persuade the Irish chieftains to surrender their land, swear fealty to the Queen, Elizabeth I, and follow English law. Though such tactics had been going on since Henry VIII, the West of Ireland had largely been able to ignore it all because they were in the West and England was like, what's over there? And everyone was like, don't look, it's fine. (laughs) Stop! In 1576, this was over though. Sydney was back, this time in Galway, and he ordered the Mayo chieftains to appear before him. Sydney began to divide and conquer, convincing some minor chieftains to side with the English for more power and money, and so he would therefore weaken the McWilliam. Soon the McWilliam had no choice but to submit, and he agreed to not only follow English law, but also provide men to the English governor and pay £250 per year to Queen Elizabeth I. (laughs) The McWilliam's capitulation meant that following English law, his eldest son would be his heir, (gasps) not whoever was voted in. I can't believe his father would betray him like that. So Richard Burke was out of the running. (gasps) Moreover, the English were effectively the ultimate power in Mayo. Grania realised the implications of this and made the decision to do something about it, deciding that the best course of action would be to offer an alliance to the English while at the very same time demonstrating her power and the might of her fleet. Very much an unspoken threat with a smiling face. In 1577, Sydney was again in Galway, this time to put down a rebellion by the Earl of Clanricard's sons. While Sydney was in Galway, Grania arranged a meeting with him, pledging herself and her fleet, and her husband, but he's like number seven on the list, to Sydney to direct as he wished. Sydney was intrigued by Grania, writing that she was a, quote, most famous feminine sea captain, end quote, who was, quote, a notorious woman in all the coasts of Ireland, end quote. He accepted her offer. Which was really a dumb move. <gasps> Grania no, had betrayal. No intention of giving up piracy, because why would you? Uh, And basically, you know, she was going to keep doing what she liked. Only a few weeks after she was hired by the English, Grania took off with her fleet down to Munster in the south, planning to plunder the Earl of Desmond. That's what they're calling it nowadays. (laughs) This was a bad plan. For the first time that we know of, Grania was caught. She was brought before the Earl, who was himself caught between the demands of the Crown and the wishes of his Irish supporters. The Queen was already suspicious that the Earl was involved in the Catholic plot against her, so the Earl saw Grania as an opportunity to curry favour. He placed Grania under arrest in Limerick Jail. Now, I wrote a Limerick in 30 seconds for this bit. Are you ready to hear it? I'm ready. All right, ready? There was a brave lady named Grania who liked sailing sea air and free space. Once laid up in gale, she wished she could sail, but couldn't because the English weren't ace. Now... Grania would have hated Gale, partially because Gale. <laughs> Why? It's because it rhymes with sail. Jail also rhymes with sail. It's the <laughs> it's the ale bit, not the G bit. I've always said Gale. It's Jail. 
I'm sorry to break this to you. Grandmom would have also hated Gail, partially because <laughs> Gail, who likes Gail, but also because her whole <laughs> life had been about freedom on land and sea, freedom not only from physical confinement, but from the confinements of laws and custom. Because like of the correct Grand- pronunciation of Gail. <laughs> <laughs> Grandmom remained in Limerick Jail. Until March 1578, when the Earl handed her over to the English President of Munster, Lord Justice Drury, as proof of his allegiance to the Queen, Elizabeth I. Drury wrote to Sidney, who was in Dublin, that he had Grania O'Malley, quote, a woman that hath impudently passed the part of womanhood, and been a great spoiler and chief commander and director of thieves and murderers at sea to spoil this province, end quote. After being imprisoned at Limerick for nearly a year and a half, Grania was transferred to prison in Jail. Dub- Dublin Castle on November 7th, 1578. Obviously, this was not good, but there's always a silver lining. The prison at Dublin Castle was reserved for the most important prisoners, so Grania's imprisonment there was kind of a sign of her reputation um, as a woman, quote, famous for her stoutness of courage in person. So, you know, it's sort of like, well, I'm in prison, but I'm in the fancy prison. Now, Hannah, I do know something about Dublin Castle. I heard that nearly all prisoners there were executed. (gasps) What would happen to Grania? Find out next time. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, She was released. She was released. She was not executed because that would be the end of the episode. When was she released? She was released in 1579. Now I wrote in a limerick. You ready? Yes. When Grania was transferred to Dublin, it seemed she was in for a drubbing, but they treated her well, like a chieftain, I tell, and they didn't even kill her, which was nice. That doesn't rhyme. Yeah, I know. Breaking the pattern, it's funny. All right. Okay. So, Grenier was released and immediately thrust into fighting again. In March 1579, Grenier was besieged at Carragahowley Castle by a force of soldiers from Galway in retaliation for Grenier's attacks on Galway shipping. The soldiers arrived on March 8th and Grenier had seen them away by the 26th. That's efficiency back in the 1500s. That is very quick for Mm. 1500 standards. Yeah, like this battle doesn't go for a month. Fantastic! (laughs) We can sleep. Wonderful. (laughs) On the 18th of July, 1579, James Fitzmaurice Fitzgerald, Fitzgale, who are after known as Fitzfitz, cousin of the Earl of Desmond, sailed into Smerwick near Dingle with 600 Spanish and Italians and the support of the Pope to unite all the Irish chieftains in a holy war against the heretic Queen of England, the Protestant Lizzie. The first. Another quick note here. Uh, because we haven't covered it yet, and this is very, very condensed. Uh, but this period is very peak Protestant versus Catholic. Both believe the other to be the worst, and with English, 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 English monarchs, monarchs flip flopping between each religion each time they die, things are getting a bit tense. Mary the First, who was queen before Elizabeth the First, had been Catholic. She died. Elizabeth took over, and she was very Protestant. But Ireland was and remained Catholic. Elizabeth under the English Elizabeth Elizabeth under England the first <laughs> under Elizabeth the first very Protestant. So though she didn't persecute Catholics as much as she could have, um, and instead mostly was just like I'm going to fine you for practicing mm. Catholicism. Many Catholics in Europe did not believe in Elizabeth the first right to rule England, and instead believed that her cousin Mary Queen of Scots, who was a Catholic was the legitimate ruler. <gasps> they think she's a legitimate ruler? I can't believe this. So, in fact, the Pope excommunicated Elizabeth, which gave legitimacy to any rebellions against her coming from the Catholics. So basically the Pope was like, yeah, get rid of her. Get rid of her, whatever it takes. Yeah. Because everyone knows the Pope 
runs the world, mm-hmm. apparently. But who not runs really. the world? Pope. 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 Who runs the Even though Vatican City is not even a member state of the UN, they're actually just an observer state. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But the UN didn't exist. Definitely not. It was still the League of Nations. <laughs> <laughs> and so, with the Pope's blessing, Fitz Fitz, we should have just called him Peter, planned to overthrow Elizabeth. <laughs> that is, until he was shot and the Earl of Desmond, who'd been doing his darnest not to make a decision in case he made the wrong one, relatable, was now forced to lead a crusade against the English crown. A crusade that would be named after him, which is just a bit unfair, really. The Second Desmond Rebellion. Gerald Fitzgerald, the Earl, appealed to both the McWilliam as well as Grania's husband to bring their forces into the rebellion. Though the McWilliam refused, probably because he had firmly entrenched himself in English rule by this point and didn't want to give that up, Richard Burke gathered forces from his own family as well as from the O'Malley's and the O'Flaherty's to march on Galway to fight for Irish independence from English interference, beginning a tradition that would last... Until today. Until today. Things kicked off in February 1580 when the English drove Burke's forces back to Mayo. Burke's supporters deserted him and he was forced back to Clue Bay with only a few followers. So Grania took things into her own hands. She approached Nicholas Mulby, one of the leaders of the English side, with her own men to voluntarily surrender on behalf of Burke's forces. To her, this seemed a far smarter option than fighting on until there was no one left and they were forced to surrender. So basically, live to fight another day. Eventually, Burke agreed to surrender himself in person to the English. He negotiated for his right to be considered a chieftain, and the English agreed, considering that the rebellion was gathering force in Munster, and the English needed to make sure Burke would not join there. Burke's submission didn't matter for very long, however. By November, the McWilliam had died, and and Burke was passed over as the successor for the McWilliam's brother, following English law. Yes. So... Burke should have been the next McWilliam. Because he was, um, he, he was elected. elected that way, yeah. But because the McWilliam had sided with English and everything, to be they followed English laws of succession, which meant his brother got to take the McWilliam. Makes and Burke sense. was like, but that was mine. Like Henry um, VIII and his brother. Mm. Yeah. So Burke and Grania gathered an army of over 2,000 to enforce his claim to the title. The shell force, combined with the support of other chieftains, meant the English had little choice but to agree that Burke could assume the McWilliamship. In the negotiations, he agreed to follow English law, pay tithe to the English crown, and obey Queen Elizabeth's representative in Ireland. That's Queen Elizabeth I. Burke also agreed to reject any who wished to rebel against the Queen, which is great for Burke because he could force out the Scottish who helped him without paying them. You can buy power, but you can't buy class. You can't. Things were fairly nice for a few years. Burke inherited a bunch of land and castles as the McWilliam, and apart from a few little squabbles, such as when Burke and Rania refused to pay the rent to the English, or when they just casually invaded their neighbour, <laughs> things were relatively peaceful. That was until Burke died in April 1583, which shockingly was from natural causes and not somebody murdering him. Are they sure? Look. Yeah. As, as sure as you can be. Natural causes. <laughs> heavy metal poisoning. He was stabbed. <laughs> like... Grania, having learned from when her first husband died, quickly decreed her claim to a third of Burke's property. So she was now 53, and she still commanded the respect and loyalty among her own men. In the preceding years, English rule had unfortunately taken hold in the region. This was helped particularly by the end of the Desmond Rebellion, by the close of 1583, with the death of the Earl. There was peace in the country, for now, and it didn't last long. It lasted about five minutes. But not for long! (laughs) The underlying tensions and reasons for the Desmond Rebellion had not disappeared with his death. The English still undermined the power and prestige of the Irish chieftains, an issue made worse by the appointment of Sir Richard Bingham as the governor of Connaught in 1584. 
Bingham did not believe in negotiation and instead believed that, quote, the Irish were never tamed with words but with swords, end quote. So it was no surprise that the situation in Ireland was a pot ready to boil over. The English were cruel rulers and the Irish were feeling those bruises. Eyre was angry too and under Bingham that grew and so Grania came out with her jewellers. I don't think you should quit your day job. How is to have a day job. Fruit. <laughs> <laughs> For Grania, things were getting personal. Bingham had captured her son, Tibbetnay Long. Tibbetnay <gasps> Long was held hostage by Bingham's brother for a year, though he was well-treated and educated in English law and customs, which was in an effort to anglicise him, so... It's not nice. It's, it's colonialism. Colonialism, all the way down. In 1584, Tibbetnay Long married Maeve O'Connor Sligo, the daughter of a local lord. In 1585, the latest McWilliam died, and Bingham enforced English laws of succession, passing over Edmund Burke. So the Burkes rebelled alongside their traditional allies, including the O'Malley's and including Tibbetnay Long. Grania's eldest son, Owen O'Flaherty, might also have been part of the rebellion. Owen was married to the daughter of Edmund Burke, and so would have had reason to support Burke's claim to the McWilliamship. Whether he was involved or not, Owen was murdered by the English. <gasps> Attacked so brutally, he had 12 wounds that could have killed him on his own. Okay, that's not funny. Yeah. Yeah. Major, major lead poisoning. (laughs) They wouldn't make a knife out of lead. It's too soft. I don't know shit about metal. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know about stabbing people. It's fine. (laughs) Driven by rage and grief, Grania was more determined than ever to support the rebellion against the English. From her current base at Kerrigo Howley, Grania prepared to set sail to recruit Scottish mercenaries to aid Irish forces. She didn't get thought. Bingham knew very well the power Grania could have over a battle and so sent his brother, Captain John Bingham, who had been involved in Owen's moida, to offer Grania protection. In other words, capture her. Bingham imprisoned Grania and put Bill to gallows, where Grania was sure she would be executed. But again, she was spared. <gasps> she was okay. Her son-in-law, Richard Burke, not to be confused with her dead husband, Richard Burke, so we'll call the son-in-law by his nickname, which was the very catchy, The Devil's Hook. Um, He so came up with that himself. I know. He He was like, guys, guys. Yeah, all my friends call me this. All my friends call me The Devil's Hook. I know, it's like, I'm so badass. So The Devil's Hook (laughs) pledged to take over custody of Grania, and so she was released into his care. This was likely possible as until this point, the devil's hook, had refused to publicly participate in the rebellion. Shock twist, however, as soon as he had custody of Grania, he joined the rebellion openly and Grania was free to pursue her activities once more. So Grania set out with her fleet to Ulster to bring in reinforcements. En route, her fleet was damaged in a storm and she was forced to pull into shore to repair. Repairs took three months. During that time, Grania visited the O'Neill and O'Donnell chieftains of Ulster, telling them of the English actions in Connaught and Munster, and warning that it wouldn't be long until such things were brought to Ulster. And back down in Mayo, back down in the Mayo jar, (laughs) the Scottish mercenaries had arrived on their own while Grania's fleet was out of commission. Bingham's forces overcame them and the Burke Rebellion succumbed to the English, suing for peace. Grania had no intention of letting things go. I know, it's shocking. (gasps) Her son had been brutally murdered after all, and the English kept trying to irrevocably change Ireland to suit them, regardless of what the Irish actually felt about it. In May 1587, Bingham left Ireland and Grania saw an opportunity. She set sail for Dublin with the hopes of appealing to Bingham's rival, Sir John Perrault, the Lord Deputy. Perrault was receptive and granted Grania a pardon for all her past offences, as well as a pardon for her sons and daughters. So Perot really must have hated Bingham. You know why he hated him? I, I found this out, actually. Because mm. 
Perot really wanted to marry um, Jane Bennett, but Bingley got there first. <laughs> Don't quit your day job. Okay. Let's have a day job. <laughs> With pardon in hand, Grenya set out to increase the size of her fleet and resumed piracy with yeah. relish. So, while Grania was getting back into the swing of piracy, the Spanish Armada was approaching English shores. Fearing that the Irish would unite under Spanish leadership and join the Armada to overthrow Elizabeth I, the current Lord Deputy William Fitzwilliam declared that it was now illegal and punishable by death to aid the Spanish, who were often shipwrecked off the Irish coast. Any chieftain who was found to harbour Spanish castaways forfeited their land to the Crown as they were seen as engaging in open rebellion against the Queen, Elizabeth I. Bingham returned to Mayo. In 1589, John Brown, the Sheriff of Mayo, was granted the power to enter the territory of the Burkes to pursue traitors and to destroy crops and livestock in the process. On the 7th of February, Brown arrived at Grania's base in Carrigahalley Castle with a force of 250 men. Grania's grandson, another Richard Burke, which, like, Grania, please, just different yeah. names. Please, please, please. There is more than one. There's so many Richard Burkes. So many so, dicks. this Richard Burke refused to grant Brown entry. Brown ignored baby Richard, who we shall call Dickie Burke. Dickie yes. Burke. Dickie Burke. Dickie Burke. And marched with his men into Burke lands, which was a bad move for Brown. His force was attacked by the Devil's Hooks <gasps> family, and Brown was killed. Dos mios! By Brown. This sparked the largest rebellion of Burks yet. All of them named Richard. <laughs> <laughs> the various Burke clans were joined by the O'Malleys, the Clan Donalds, and the Clan Gibbons, and the Aflatis to overthrow Bingham. Grania was right in amongst the fray, attacking the nearby English-held Arran Islands and burning all the jumpers she found there, <laughs> along with everything else. Her sons, Tibbetnay Long and Edmund, joined the rebels, and the Burke forces fought and plundered their way right to the walls of Galway City, to the shock and fear of Fitzwilliam, who was the Lord Deputy. Fitzwilliam ordered Bingham to call off his forces and called a truce. Again, the issue of the McWilliamship was at the front and centre of negotiations. They also wanted Bingham removed as governor of Connaught. Bingham's rivals were happy to agree to this. Elizabeth, the Queen, the first, herself, wrote to Fitzwilliam, encouraging him to appease the rebels and find peace. The Burks charged Bingham with encroaching on their lands and unjustly forcing them to house English soldiers, as well as accusing him of cruelty, torture, and the murder of Grania's son, her nephews, and other Burke relations, presumably all called Richard. <laughs> For their part, the Burks promised, pretty please, pinky promise, to turn over any Spanish castaways to the English. Which, shockingly, was just a tactic, and the Burks had no intention of following through. They had the upper hand, after all. Mm. Grania took one of her sons to Scotland, where they hired Scottish mercenaries, and they returned to Mayo in early September 1589. The rebellion grew, and the Burks continued to plunder. Elizabeth, the Queen, the first, ordered that Bingham be put to trial to determine if the charges against him were true, but he was acquitted in Dublin in 1590. And so he returned to Connaught, determined to end the rebellion. He allied with the Earls of Clanricard and Thormund, Thormund? and marched a thousand men through Mayo, killing, looting, and burning as they went. The rebellion struggled. Again, Grania was at the centre of it all. As part of the rebellion, her lands around Carrigahalley Castle became a key target of Bingham. She and her fleet were able to get away, but her land was razed. Her second son, Murrah, defected and joined with Bingham. <gasps> Rude! No! Prompting Grania to take arms against him in retribution. Look fair. She would not let insult against her or her people stand. When Scottish mercenaries plundered Mayo and then left by sea, she pursued them with her fleet to enact revenge. 
By 1591, her sons Edmund and Tippet A. Long were at the top of the Burke hierarchy, and by the next year, Granya and these two sons were the only chieftains who had not capitulated to Bingham. That year, in 1592, Tibbet Long was induced to stage an uprising in Mayo, which ultimately failed. So basically, if your name is not Richard, you're far more likely to resist the English. Oh, interesting. If, if, you're, if yeah. you're within the Burke clan, yeah. yeah. In retaliation, Bingham once again attacked Carragahowley, this time also sending warships into Clue Bay, and at last uncovering the secrets of the coastline that the O'Malley's had guarded so fiercely and used to such great advantage. Grania's freedom of movement was forever curtailed. Tibbenay Long surrendered to Bingham in September 1592. Under the harsh terms of his surrender, Tibbenay Long no longer held power over other families in the wider clan, only over his own direct family. He was forced to pay for the soldiers that had come to suppress the rebellion and to pay back money he had stolen through plunder. This surrender brought with it a tense peace. Tense as hell. Like, the returning of stuff you plundered. Yeah. Such an awkward interaction. And there's just, like, blood all over it and stuff. Like, like yeah, that was Greg, sorry. Here, here, here's your money back. Sorry about the holes. Sorry about the husband. Sorry about the holes we stabbed in it. <laughs> anyway, with our lead knives. Granya was now in her 60s. She was widowed twice over. Her eldest son had been murdered. Her second son had allied with her enemy. She had lost her fleet. Her land had been destroyed. And she was no longer able to live freely on the open sea. It would have been unsurprising if Grania had given up. But that wouldn't be Grania. Back in Carragahalli, Grania was deciding which road to take next. So that road, Grania decided, was to write to the Queen of England, Elizabeth I, and <laughs> plead her case. Which makes sense. So this might seem a bit odd, Grania writing to Elizabeth, who you would think Grania would see as the enemy. But for Grania, that wasn't actually how she saw it. So as we've seen, both the allies and the enemies of Gaelic chieftains were very individual and personal. So you had a quarrel with a very particular chieftain, you fought with him with the help of your friends, you won or you lost, but you didn't hold it against his friends who had fought with him. This individualised society was in part a reason that there was no real chance of sustained widespread Irish resistance to English rule, because it was really easy to convince a chieftain to protect his own people and forget about his neighbours. So Grania had a quarrel with Bingham and other English men who she'd had direct contact with, but not with the country of England as a whole, nor with the English monarch. It's almost like lots of little squabbling groups getting into the little nooks and crannies and nuances can't stand up against a big conservative force. <laughs> and they should all, they should all put their on. differences aside, suck it up and work together. No but idea. who knows? Not relevant to uh, our society. Not, not at all. So Grania wrote to Lizzie in June 1593 to ask Elizabeth to remove the thorn in her side that was Bingham. Now it was time for Grania to play the game politically rather than militarily. She opened her first petition to the Queen with an account of her life in an effort to counteract anything negative that Bingham and other English officials had relayed to Elizabeth. Grania appealed to Elizabeth as a woman in a man's world, citing the lack of protection for widows in Ireland, and asked Elizabeth for essentially a pension. In exchange, Grania offered to surrender the lands held by her two remaining sons and the two remaining Burke nephews, presumably both called Richard. <laughs> I will give you all the lands of men named Richard Burke, which is all of Ireland. It's a great apartment in New York as well. <laughs> in the 90s. But Grania's main objective was really to get back on the seas, which Bingham had barred her from. So Grania asked Elizabeth to, quote, grant unto your said subject under your most gracious hand a signet free liberty during her life to invade with sword and fire all your highness's enemies wheresoever they are or shall be, 
without any interruption of any person or persons whatsoever, end quote. <laughs> Which is just, like, she went for it. It's outrageous! <laughs> she went for it. She's like, pretty please, if I do it for you, can I kill everybody yeah. I feel like? Which, you know, like, Grandia basically went, I've caused a lot of trouble in Ireland by being a pirate, but can you set me up as a privateer, which is essentially an authorised pirate, Hmm. um, so I can do it legally now? And Elizabeth agreed. Granny could go back to her old life, but this time Bingham would not be able to stop her. Now, I bet you thought we'd finish with your rebellions and warfare. Well, you obviously don't know your Irish history. I don't know my rebellions from my risings. (laughs) Well, maybe if you focused up invading us for five minutes. Um, so, well, sorry, Mum. Well, Grania was landlocked and riding to the Queen over in Ulster, things were getting hot again. Hoping for Spanish assistance and fed up with yet more English micromanaging, Hugh O'Neill, the Earl of Tyrone, was planning to go to war against the English with the aid of Red Hugh O'Donnell. He was o- a communist. He was. Very early communist. <laughs> the, the OG marks. Hughism. That's what his school was called. O'Neill outwardly professed his loyalty to the crown and had even fought on Bingham's side in Munster. But while fighting in Munster, he saw what had happened when the English invaded, just as Grania had warned him, Shock. and wanted to avoid the same fate as the English got closer and closer to Ulster. When he- fighting broke out, Tibbet Long was accused of being re- a rebel, which he probably was, and he was arrested for treason. So Grania knew she had to act, and quite quickly, because treason was punishable by death. And knowing Bingham, as she did aware that her entire family was definitely not in Bingham's good books, Grania was quite concerned that her son was likely to face execution very soon. Grania decided that simply writing to the Queen again wouldn't be enough and would probably take too long anyway because Australia Post, you know, they have trouble. There's they, were, they were overwhelmed. Yeah. They were overwhelmed. Um, so Grania set sail for England, accompanied by her men and captaining her own ship. Though Ireland and England are next door to each other, Grania's route was a long one. Departing from the west coast of Ireland, she had to sail down south, under Ireland, under England, and then come up the east coast of England to sail up the Thames to get to London. Grania sailed into English waters in early 1593, and somehow avoided capture by the English warships roaming around, hoping to repel the Spanish Armada. Which makes it basically the only ship ever to avoid Mm -hmm. the English warships. Then again, the Spanish Armada was mostly a weather Issue, yeah. wasn't it? Grania arrived at the Elizabethan court, currently at Greenwich Palace to avoid the plague, sometime in June or July 1593. The court, as anyone who has watched a historical drama on the Tudors would know, was a political and social minefield. Grania had to carefully navigate the laws, customs, expectations and unspoken rules in order to even be granted an audience with the Queen. But the Queen! Few were granted such a privilege and very rarely were they Irish chieftains and even fewer were Irish pirate queen chieftain rebels. With another looming Spanish invasion, 1593 was tense in England, and there were many who desired an audience with Queen Elizabeth I. Grania pleaded her case first to Black Tom, the Earl of Ormond, who was a favourite of the Queen. (laughs) Why do you guys have to call me that? (laughs) Black Tom introduced Grania to the Lord Treasurer, who was, at this point, the most powerful figure in the court after the Queen. So if they were going to have, like, a leadership spill, he (laughs) (laughs) He's the one with the knife in the back. Yeah. The Lord Treasurer had a sharp mind and knew of Grania's history, and so she needed all her wits and cunning to convince him to let her speak to Elizabeth. He questioned Grania about why she wanted to see the Queen. Grania obviously gave good enough answers. Um, Elizabeth was intrigued, and so the Lord Treasurer, seeing the situation in Ulster, wanted to keep a powerful chieftain like Grania on the English's side. Mm. Elizabeth finally granted an audience with Grania sometime in July. 
The two women were strikingly alike. Both were in their 60s, both had had to fight for their power and the respect of those around them, both were prone to apparent breaches in ladylike decorum, and both were intelligent, resourceful, charismatic and self-assured. This meeting has become the stuff of legends and is recorded in Irish folklore as the meeting of two queens. There are many stories about what transpired in the room, but what really happened is unclear. The conversation between them was likely in Latin, the easiest common language for them both. Based on later letters about the meeting from both women, it seems Grania was a persuasive petitioner and a canny one too. Grania admitted to only one illegal action on her part and instead focused on the crimes and atrocities <laughs> of Bingham. It's like, oh yeah, I invented like one island, but in my defense, Bingham had done it first and that was after he did X, Y, Z. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Very clever. She's like, look, yeah. here's, here's a weakness in my argument, yeah. but look how bad this Bingham guy is. She would have won debate club. <laughs> Elizabeth found Grania compelling and listened attentively to her case. Again, Grania requested that the Queen dismiss Bingham and asked Elizabeth the first to order her son's release from prison. Again, Grania asked that she be allowed to return to a seafaring life, implying that if Elizabeth permitted her to do so, Grania would aid the Crown in battle against external forces, like the Spanish. Interesting. As an added small, minor, mostly inconsequential side benefit, Grania suggested, Seafaring would allow her to provide for herself in her old age. So the government's not wasting money on a pension. Essentially, it was her pension. Uh, But, you know, that was really beside the point. Anyway, her case was made. The meeting was over. Elizabeth promised to investigate Grania's claims, particularly about Bingham, and make a decision. Grania waited in the English court for a decision from Elizabeth for another two months, all the time worrying that her son might be executed at any moment. In September, Grania finally got her reply. Though Bingham had written to declare his innocence, incensed that the Queen would even consider the possibility of backing Grania, Grania had succeeded. The Queen wrote to Bingham, ordered him to release Tibbet Nalong. Elizabeth was also moved by Grania's situation as a widow without any official rights to land or a livelihood, and ordered that Grania should be supported by the taxes from her son's estates. Finally, Elizabeth told Bingham to get over himself. <laughs> well, I, we hope that's what that was in there. But she did tell him to live and let live, ordering him to leave Grania alone to live in peace. I, I just, I, I just really hope he got a bit of a dressing down. I do too. Mm. I also kind of like to imagine Bingham like apoplectic with rage, like, <laughs> storming around his mansion like bloody women, bloody women, bloody women, bloody women. So his eye bulging outrage wouldn't have been helped by Elizabeth's closing remarks that Grania had, quote, "...depareth with great thankfulness and with many earnest promises that she will, as long as she lives, continue a dutiful subject." End quote. Beautiful accent. Thank you. Grania. Don't know what it was. Uh, it wasn't English. It was, wasn't pot. Irish. It was generic posh. <laughs> it was something. Generic old-fashioned posh. <laughs> Grania had done what no Irish woman had done before. She had held power on her own terms and fought to protect it. Her status as a powerful leader in Ireland was cemented in print a few years later when a new map of Ireland was published that listed Irish chieftains. Grania was the only woman included on that list. That's pretty cool. Mm. That's pretty cool. When I wrote this, I don't agree with what I just wrote. (laughs) 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 I'm I'm just thinking, like, the only one in Irish history that we kind of know The known Irish... By this point, yes. For all we know, one of those chiefs is a woman in a fake moustache. Like... (laughs) From what the historical record tells us, she was the first woman to have done it in Ireland, but yeah, anyway. I'm McWilliam Lucy. I mean, Lucifer. (laughs) I'm arguing with myself from six months ago. (laughs) 
Though recognised in cartography... Cartographically recognised. Grania still had to deal with challenges to her position. Bingham, like a bad penny, took as long as he possibly could to enact Elizabeth's decrees. Bingham probably took even longer because Grania delivered the letter to his hands personally, which again, brings me great joy. He really should have known by now that what Grania wanted, Grania got. She threatened to go back to England if he did not release her son, which she finally did in November 1593. So Grania had her son and she was back on the seas, this time with the backing of the Queen of England, Elizabeth I, who had effectively given Grania a licence to engage in whatever acts of piracy she wanted to under the terms of maintenance and fighting for the Queen. Grania said about rebuilding her... You're so much more polite when I talk. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Grania said about rebuilding her fleet and soon commanded three large galleys that could hold 300 men each, and three times 300 is 900. A lot of men. Bing- <laughs> Bingham-, Bingham did not like what he was seeing and spent his time trying to figure out how to stop Grania becoming a pirate again while still obeying the Queen. In 1594, he made his move, ordering a troop of soldiers to accompany Grania's fleet while at sea. Worse, Bingham ordered Grania and Tibetnay Long to attack Irish rebels who had taken refuge on nearby islands as part of their oath to fight for the Queen's interests. So, Grania and Tibetnay Long are fighting for the Queen, not yep. the rebels. Yeah. So these rebels were the remaining members of her grandson's army, including her grandson himself. What was his name again? Dickie Burke. Dickie Burke. Dickie, Dickie, Dickie Burke. If this wasn't enough, Bingham had one more move. He ordered a detachment of soldiers to be stationed on Grania's lands, forcing her to feed and supply them, eating into her own supplies and resources. Grania and her followers were unable to feed themselves in such conditions, and so left Mary for Munster, sailing out of Clue Bay. Grania again wrote to Elizabeth I and even visited England again sometime in May 1595 to plead her case to the Queen. Lizzie! Grania! What's up? Again, Grania asked that Bingham be ordered to back off his crusade against her. The Queen was again impressed by Grania's determination and instigated a commission to investigate Grania's son's lands in Mayo with the aim of offering them the surrender and re-grant terms that would enforce their claim on the land. Luckily for Grania, Bingham was not long in the position of governor after this. His own terrible personality took care of her problem when his colleagues decided enough was enough. They planned to remove him, and fearing that he would be charged with something, Bingham fled to England where he was immediately arrested. Ah, ah. Sad, sad day. At 65, Grania was finally free of the scourge of Bingham and could return happily to piracy. So, around her... The Tyrone Rebellion raged on and internal divisions continued to plague Grania's family. Her son got kidnapped again and then ended up leading Irish forces for the English, but we're not going to go into that because everything happens so much. We can't tell our rebellions from our risings. And we'd be here forever if we didn't, and this is the third time we've had to record this episode. <laughs> so, Tibetnay Long ended up profiting massively from aiding the English and was soon the largest landover in Mayo. Grania, therefore, also profited because if you tried to, like, cut her off, she'd be like, I will fuck you up. (laughs) Um, This might seem like a betrayal of her ideals, yet Grania never shied away from the fact she was out for her own interests and her interests alone. Contrary to how things developed in later centuries, nationalism and Irish patriotism were also not key driving forces in 16th century Ireland. Ireland. So we don't know exactly when Grania died. From remaining records, it seems that she did eventually retire from active piracy in her 70s, um, and instead directed things from her base at Carragahalley Castle. This was where she likely died around 1603. In another mirror, this was the same year that Queen Elizabeth I died. Parallels. 
and also the year that the Tyrone Rebellion ended, which was basically the final death knell of Irish independence from English rule. For a long time, Grania was absent from the historical record, but she was remembered in folklore as a hero of Irish independence. She appears in various songs and ballads, particularly songs popular amongst revolutionaries and rebels. The Irish Rebellion song Oroche do Bahavale, sung by Irish revolutionaries at the Easter Uprising, references, quote, Grace O'Malley and a thousand warriors announcing ruin on the English, end quote. Her image and her legacy are probably best summed up by the song Grania Whale from around the 1790s, recorded in connection to men from Mayo who fought in the Battle of Ballinamuck as part of the 1798 Irish Rebellion against British rule. In this song, Grania defends her castle against English forces. So the, quote, flag of Grace O'Malley, wave defiant, proud and free, and no warlike chief or viking e'er had bolder heart than she. Woo! What a way to be remembered! Woo-hoo. That's pretty awesome. I would like that legacy. Yeah, so um, thank, thank you for listening. Thank you for listening again, if you've listened to the first time. Thank you, Nicola, for recording this for the third time. <laughs> <laughs> no, mistakes happen, it's fine. Um... Hannah cut out a lot of this, so read the Anne Chambers biography if you'd like to know more. And check out some of the songs about her on YouTube. Yeah. Nothing is better than a bit of Irish folk. There is some really good songs about her. Yeah. I think, I don't know. Sinead even... O'Connor did it. Oh, it's not her name anymore, but yeah. Sinead O'Connor did it. I think I made a little Woman of War playlist about <gasps> Grenya. Oh, songs. that's groovy. You if should I didn't, a... I'll do it and we'll put a link out. You should make one for the one I'm writing right now. It's just all songs about being cold. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I have a playlist which is like you're going off on an adventure and it's all just like these sort of songs. I'm like driving yeah. along the streets oh, of Melbourne being like, oh, yeah, I'm a pirate. <laughs> I am a pirate. Um, and we have, we'll be back very, very soon. We will be back soon. You, if you've turned on the ABC, you might hear a familiar voice. <laughs> I hate talking about it so much. It was really fun, but it's really embarrassing. I'm getting the fierce sweats again. Um, Hannah, would you like to talk about other stuff? Um, I mean... No. All right. Well, we have um, we have a very sporadic newsletter. We have a website that's quite. I am good. going to pick up the newsletter. Oh, cool. that's my plan for season three. I'm proud of you, babe. Just to be like, let's get this uh, newsletter I promise happening. I'll help you with it. It Hannah, will not be fortnightly. Hannah does be. most of like the webmaster stuff, and I think she does an amazing job. And I love you, Hannah. Um, if the tweets have spelling errors, they're from me. Um, Nicola does most tweeting. Yeah, I do because I I live there. Um, <laughs> and I have one last limerick for you. Hit me. There's something we'd ask you to do. Let's leave us an Apple review. Five stars would be great. More people can find us with that rage. And we love feedback. Yes, that is true. Not my best. That's beautiful. But but the point stands. And also, you can now give feedback ratings on Spotify. I didn't know that. So if you listen on Spotify, also give us five stars. We want to get a higher rating than Joe Rogan, who's a racist misinformation spreader. Yeah. Seriously. I'm, we deserve more ratings than him. Everyone deserves more ratings than him. <laughs> like, legitimately, I do not understand how popular he is. No. I hadn't heard of him until six months ago. Same. Same. Anyway, thank you for listening, and thank we will see you very, very soon. We won't see you. You'll hear us. Yes. We'll hear you. No, we won't. And there's a little hint. Dos <laughs> Thanks for listening. Bye. Ding dong, ding dong, dong dong, ding dong. Well, this is a brief interruption to say the audio quality might change from here in the episode because Nicola had a phone call and she went up to take the phone call and then Hannah turned the microphones off. Then Nicola finished her phone call, came back, they kept recording, but Hannah had unfortunately forgotten to turn the microphones on and Nicola, who usually says, oh, are the microphones on? (laughs)
didn't say at that time. I was so, just trying to be like confidential. It just it backfired. Yeah, Never I'll, be confidential. And I was folks. trying to be like trusting in you, and I do trust. Share you. your secrets to everyone. So we're filming. We're filming. We're recording this um, <laughs> later on. Um, so the audio might have changed, and I have a glass of Coke, Coca Cola, not the other kind of Coke, with me. So if there's slight bubbling in the background. So basically, Grania was just like. Do we really need a re-record of your episode? Yeah, <laughs> she's like, no. Her spirit's like, no, I'm going to pirate it. But anyway, ding dong, ding dong, dong dong, ding dong. <laughs> are we recording? Yeah, we're recording. Okay, good. Are we're the recording. microphones on? <laughs> the microphones are on. It's making its thing, saying it's going. All right.